0: Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host. Vicki St. Clair
1: and welcome everybody welcome welcome death by suicide leaves family members and loved ones with a million unanswered questions today we devote the entire hour to suicide awareness and prevention my second guest is a suicide prevention specialist with the Washington State Department of Health she'll share warning signs how to approach someone if you think they are suicidal and how to get the help and resources you need for yourself or for someone else. We'll end today's show with a personal look at suicide. When writer A.W. Barnes lost his older brother, he sought catharsis by pouring his thoughts onto the page. His new memoir is The Dark Eclipse, Reflections on Suicide and Absence. Did it help him find the answers he was looking for? Well, stay tuned to find out. But first, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Eileen Kennedy-Moore, She's going to discuss with us uh, something I don't hear very often uh, discussed, but it's important, and that's suicide in children and what every parent must know. But let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Eileen Kennedy-Moore is an author and psychologist. She's a trusted expert on parenting and child development, and she serves on the advisory board for Parents Magazine. She blogs for Psychology Today, PBS Parents, U.S. News World uh, and, Report, and World Report, and is a, a frequent contributor to uh, national media. Her just, re- re- just released book is Kid Confidence, Help Your Child Make Friends, Build Resilience, and Develop Real Self-Esteem. Welcome Dr. Eileen Kennedy-Moore. Thank you Vicki, thank you for
2: having me on the show, and thank you even more for addressing this very difficult, very uncomfortable, and very important topic.
1: Yes, it is. And and I wanted to include children in today's discussion because I read a study uh, when I was researching something else that said, although it's a very rare occurrence, death by suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in children. Could you help put some perspective around that for us? Sure. Well, fortunately, it is not
2: common. So about two out of every million children between ages five and 11 will die by suicide compared to about 52 per million of teenagers, 12 to 17 year olds. So fortunately, it is not common. But it is just devastating for the families when when this does happen.
1: Yes. What, what age do children become aware of of suicide or, or people um, dying of their own hand?
2: Well, we actually have some research about that. And for most first graders, they understand the idea of killing themselves, but or killing oneself, but they don't necessarily have, know of the word suicide. Around third grade, which is eight or nine, then they are familiar with the word suicide. But even then, children's ideas about the details of death are a little bit murky. So by um, first grade, kids know that people who die don't come back to life. By second grade, they understand that everyone dies eventually. But they may believe, even fifth graders may believe, that dead people can see and hear. So they don't quite grasp the finality of it the way we adults think about it.
1: Right, right. I want to look at... um... I, I read everything I read said that more boys than than girls actually um, die by suicide. Is that your experience? It is. And it's it's quite
2: striking at all ages. It's about three to one, the, the rates of um, boys to girls who die by suicide. And we don't really know why. Um, one possibility is that boys tend to be more physical, more aggressive, um, maybe more impulsive, and that could explain it. One of the really interesting um, and heartbreaking findings from research is that in teenagers, um, suicide is most likely linked to depression. In younger children, um, attention deficit disorder is twice as common in dep- than depression among children who die by suicide. So that leads us to the idea that maybe these kids didn't really want to die, but they just acted impulsively, um, which is heartbreaking.
1: It's, it is heartbreaking. So what does that mean then that we need to pay more attention to children who have depression and ADHD?
2: I think we want to take mental illness in children very, very seriously. We adults, you know, we have mortgages to pay and <laughs> work deadlines and uh, uh, houses to clean and, and groceries to, to buy. So it's easy to imagine that childhood is completely carefree. And the fact is, children are little people with big feelings. So something that seems like nothing to us can be devastating to them. Children, by definition, lack perspective. They just haven't been around that long. They haven't seen that much of the world. So um, getting
1: from the soccer team can feel unbearable right my next guest uh, talks uh, I pre-recorded that and we talked about the fact that talking about uh, ideas of suicide thoughts of suicide helps people who are feeling that way but it's something we don't talk about with children so much so how do we how do we even approach that subject Take a deep breath and do it Um, because this is
2: uncomfortable. It's worse than talking about sex. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's really important. Um, So you wanna ask questions, especially if your instinct as a parent says, you know, things aren't right. I don't know what's going on, but things aren't right. Ask questions. So you could say things like, have things ever gotten so bad that you've thought about hurting yourself? Or have you ever wished you were dead? Or have you ever wanted to go to sleep and never wake up? Or some, or you could also say that sometimes when kids feel very upset, they think about killing themselves. Has that ever happened to you? We, this is horrible because we parents, we love our children, we don't even wanna think about this possibility, but researchers are unanimous in saying it does not put ideas in their head. If we know that between eight and nine, kids understand about suicide, We wanna get the parental voice in there. We wanna get us talking to them and saying that suicide is a permanent solution to temporary problems. To be able to say to our kids, no matter what is going on, I'm here, I'm with you, I will help you get through it. Um, That is so, so important that our kids hear that. Another thing that's really important is if you have had a suicide in your community, We know that suicide can be contagious and your child may be hearing about it from other kids. We want to have the adult voice, the loving parent voice to go in there and talk about it. You are very precious to me. Whatever the problem is, you come to me and we'll figure it out together.
1: Right, right. On your um, Psychology Today blog, you wrote that um, it's really a, a reaction, if you will, often to them just not knowing how to cope with things and then they impulsively act to hurt themselves and I think that's such a key thing because if you don't have a full understanding of death at that that age um it it, it's I've actually had somebody very close to me who did it twice as a cry for help Uh. um and it's um you know luckily we were able to jump in there and, and help that person um, oh, but, right. yeah. you know, but it could have been a very different story. And then, you know, there's no coming back from that. Exactly.
2: And I think sometimes parents worry that, well, they're just doing it for attention. But a child or a teen who is preoccupied with thoughts of dying or suicide, they're suffering and they urgently need help. So don't hesitate if you're saying, well, I'm not really sure it's that bad. Go, go talk to a mental health professional. Talk to your pediatrician. They always know the local co- um, therapists in the community and get a good recommendation. And I would also say, trust your gut about the therapist. So I always recommend having a session with just the parents and the therapist first. And this is a chance for the therapist to ask a lot of questions and get to know your family and get to know the history because you are the expert on your child. Nobody's logged more hours with your kid than you have and right. nobody has long-term perspective but it's also a chance for you to look the therapist over and decide is this a good match for my child and my family
1: right one thing I want to make sure we point out because we have talked about children with ADHD and depression and you write about this in in your blog Um, the majority of children with ADHD or depression are not suicidal
2: Absolutely. And the majority of children who think about suicide do not end up hurting or killing themselves. Um, so, we, you know, take a deep breath and um, let's deal with it, deal with the child in front of us, and let's figure out how to help them solve whatever it is that they're overwhelmed with, whether it's school demands or feeling friendless or being bullied. Um, we can work together and help. Right.
1: So um, let's talk about if you've lost a child to suicide. I I can't imagine how difficult that must be to come back from if you ever do come back fully. Um, What advice do you give parents who have lost a child to suicide?
2: I think there will always be a hole in their hearts for that child. Um, No words can ease their anguish, Um, but it's important for them to know that they are not alone and to reach out to friends and family or a mental health professional. There are also online support groups like Parents of Suicides, because sometimes it is such a thing that separates families from everyone around them. Um, I've worked with, with families who've lost a child from suicide, and they just feel like they can't even talk to anybody because no one understands and they feel people kind of withdrawing almost as if you know i can't touch you or my kid will commit suicide um which is not a deliberate or conscious thought of the the friends and neighbors but it's just such a a gut-wrenching tragedy that it's hard to face Um, so it is important to recognize that it's not their fault it's not their child's fault it's nobody's fault and to try to find comfort in the memories of their child's life.
1: I want to just touch on um, a study that you sh- you shared in one of your articles on children and suicide and, and what parents need to know. Uh, it was with the Abbey Ridge Anderson at the Catholic University of America and, um, oh, I'm sorry, it was by Abbey Ridge Anderson at the Catholic University of America and her colleagues note that the clinical impression that children who are preoccupied with suicidal thoughts, uh, and I'm going to quote here, do not so much crave the termination of their biological existence as much as a desire for control, empathy, acceptance, recognition, validation, and the prompt interpersonal responsi- responsiveness of key people in the child's life. Just address that if you would.
2: That's exactly right, these kids are feeling desperate, they want to be heard, they want to be helped, they desperately want things to get better, but they can't come up with more effective ways to handle their problems, so that's why suicide seems appealing to them. There's actually a very interesting theory of suicide, it's called the interpersonal theory, and it starts with the idea that I am alone, or I am broken, um, or I am a burden on the people who care about me. And that leads to a sense of hopelessness and a desire that I want to die. And when that is also coupled with the belief that I'm not afraid to die, then we get the suicidal acting out, Um, whether it's an attempt or um, an actual um, suicide death. So... What that says to me is if we want to think about what is our best inoculation against suicide, there's one word, and that's connection. So be involved with your child. To spend enjoyable time together. You know, we're all so busy nowadays. It's like, did you get your homework done? You know, (laughs) I gotta get I have one more deadline, I've got to do one more thing on on my laptop. Um, it's easy to get distracted, but we had these kids with because we wanted to love and enjoy them. (laughs) So Don't let the busyness of life push that away. Get to know your child's friends, know what's happening at school, in the neighborhood. When when my kids were younger, um, when they came home from school, I have four kids, so it was kind of chaotic, right? So you, <laughs> you, know, know, of
1: what, yeah, you know what you're know what you talking about. Exactly.
2: <laughs> right. So um, And I wouldn't say I was mean, but I was kind of task-oriented about, okay, who needs to do what? What do we have to do? And then I thought, you know, this is not how I want to reconnect with my children at the end of the day. So I made a new habit of just drinking a cup of hot tea when they came in. And I couldn't, you know, just slug it back <laughs> in an instant, but... And when the tea was done, I still had to do the, okay, what's for dinner? Who has to go where? And you know, what's the, the homework? But for those few minutes as I was drinking the tea, I could stop and slow down and just pay attention. And research tells us that those reunion moments, when we get together with our family after the end of a day or at the end of the day, are really important and an opportunity for intimacy. So take that. The other piece of connection is children's friendships. So I've written a whole bunch of books about children's friendships because I just think this is so critically important. We want kids to have that sense of belonging. They don't have to be popular, but they need to have a sense that they have somebody or several somebodies who they like, who like them back. Um, So if you think about it, um, research tells us that Well, from our own experience, we know that friendship makes the the good times more fun and the hard times more bearable. But research tells us also that if you want your kid to be more engaged in school, help them make friends. If you want them to cope better with family stressors, help them make friends. If you want them to feel happier, help them make friends. So this is very, very important.
1: Well, great advice. I had to smile when you said you have a cup of, you had, had excuse me, had a cup of tea when your kids came home from school because nothing happened in my grandmother's house with first having a cup of tea. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to let listeners know that you have a fantastic website at EileenKennedymore.com. EileenKennedymore.com. It's full of resources up there, and listeners can find all of your books up there. And your latest, of course, is Kid Confidence Help Your Child make friends, build resilience, and develop real self-esteem. Dr. Eileen Kennedy-Moore, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Vicki. And please do stay with us. Uh, When we come back, we're going to uh, talk about warning signs, red flags, and resources from the uh, perspective of a suicide prevention specialist at the Washington State Department of Health. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair.
3: Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org.
4: Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning.
5: Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and and ONDCP.
2: Hi, I'm Kathy Cooper, and every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m., I'll be hosting Lost and Found. We'll be discussing all types of losses, but it's not going to be the doom and gloom hour. It'll be an hour of education, support, validation, and yes, we will have a little bit of humor. So won't you join me Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m., Lost and Found, because every loss matters, and through every loss, something can be found.
5: At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and
0: promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Can holding a grudge actually work in your favor? Author Sophie Hanna says yes. It may even protect and inspire you and make you more forgiving hear why, and how to hold a grudge from resentment to contentment. The power of grudges to transform your life. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net.
5: Bringing good vibes to the Puget Sound and the world. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We're devoting this whole hour to suicide prevention and awareness. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 1-800-273-TALK or 8255 and uh, joining me next is Sigrid Reinert. Uh, you know, often when someone dies by suicide, those around them are left wondering what they missed. Were there warning signs, red flags they should have acted upon? I spoke with Sigrid to find out. She's a suicide prevention specialist at the Washington State Department of Health. And I'm going to bring our conversation to you now, Sigrid Reinert. Sigrid, I really appreciate you talking with us today about this topic, and I wonder if we can begin by just telling me a little bit about the program at Washington State Department of Health, what it's all about, and and what their aim is.
3: Well, Washington State Department of Health has been active in suicide prevention at least since 1995. Back then, we used to get state funds, and what we did is we funded and supported local coalitions throughout the state, and the focus of those coalitions was primarily youth suicide prevention. So we have been doing that, as I said, since 1995. In the last years, as uh, the current governor has taken a real interest in suicide prevention, we are doing more. We now have an Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, and that is a statewide organization of agency leaders. It's those people who can actually make some changes within an agency. On the one or two levels down, we have a um, mental health prevention, suicide prevention work group that meets and talks about various topics and looks at what's going on in the state.
1: There's a lot going on and you have a very helpful website up there, which I'll give out the, all that information after we finish talking here. But I, I liked this because when I was looking at the, the core principles of the Washington State Suicide Prevention Plan, you begin by saying suicide is a preventable public health problem not a personal weakness or family failure. So I think that kind of sets up where you're coming from on that. And I wonder Absolutely. if you, Yeah, I wonder if you just share with us what your role as suicide prevention specialist encompasses. Well, actually
3: there are three of us here. Uh, working on suicide prevention. So when you ask me personally what is my role, I am implementing uh, a federal youth suicide prevention grant in three world counties. Then my coworker, Nisha is working on implementing the state plan that he just made reference to. And then I have another coworker, Kirsten, who works um, on a local level by supporting uh, local suicide prevention efforts.
1: So let's look at some of the warning signs, because I've known uh, several people who died by suicide, and people are always left wondering, you know, what happened, what did I miss? Um, I'm guessing in some ta- some cases it's easier to spot the warning signs than others, but would you, would you give us some key red flags there that we should look out for?
3: Yes, and you're right, in some cases those uh, warning signs are easier to see than in others. So you may see changes in mood. Uh, you may see somebody who is more anxious, depressed, um, or maybe even angry who withdraws um, from activities that, that he or she usually likes. You may see behavior changes like uh, increase in substance abuse, rat reckless behavior, withdrawals from friends or family. Um, And then um, really concerning is when you hear people talk about threatening to hurt or kill themselves, or um, looking for ways to inquire firearms or pills, or when they're talking about death and dying and trying to give away their properties. So those, the last few signs that I mentioned are more concerning than the earlier signs that I mentioned.
1: Right, right. Um, also, you've got on your list, you've got, uh, you know, talking about being a burden to others. I'm assuming that happens a lot with elderly people who suddenly need their family to take care of them.
3: Right. Elderly people um, who may have lost a spouse, who may have a chronic illness, and who may need assistance. It's a uh, I think primarily those who are concerned that they may be a burden to
1: others and they don't want that. Right. I know that um, you, you touched on this, withdrawing, feeling isolated is, is a key thing. And um, and I actually saw this, but Oprah Magazine, and you, you make reference to it on your website, Oprah, uh, Gail King actually sat down and talked with some people about uh about suicide and how they felt about it. And it seemed to be a good thing for them to talk about it.
3: Absolutely. Um, When you see somebody who may show those signs, uh, show the person that you care and engage them in conversations. If the conversations make you concerned, thinking, well, you know, the person may possibly be thinking about hurting himself, herself or killing him or herself. Do ask the question. Don't be shy about that. It may feel awkward to you, but do it. Ask are you thinking about killing yourself? And see what kind of answer you get. And if they say yes, then um, you know, don't leave them alone. Make sure they don't have the means to do so. If they have firearms, ask if they can be stored somewhere else. If they have pills, ask if they can be stored safely. And uh, Either call nine one one or a local crisis line, or call the national suicide prevention lifeline. May I give the number of that lifeline? Yes, please do. Okay, it is one is talk, and that is eight two five five.
1: Great, and I will give that out again at the end of our conversation. Um, One thing that I think is a common, uh, it's common misinformation, and and you have this on a document on your website, that suicide is complex, you say. There are almost always multiple causes, including psychiatric illnesses, that that may not have been recognized or treated. Um, You also say suicide is, prevention is is everyone's concern. So, and I also saw that medical professionals now uh, caregivers, uh, carers, um, have to recognize the signs for this. So there's training out there for people if they want want to take it further, right?
3: well actually training for medical providers is now mandatory uh, a few years ago a bill passed making it mandatory for almost all healthcare care providers to take suicide prevention training just because we know that many people who later die of suicide are in contact with a physician in the last couple of months before their death so so physicians have uh, a good chance to come across suicidal people. So therefore, we need to teach them how to recognize the signs and what to do about it.
1: Right. So bottom line is, um, if, if we're in doubt, if we have a friend or a family member that we, we think is veering towards suicide, um, we need to step in and take some action there. And you said call 911 or that, that 800 number that you gave out.
3: Exactly. And the first action is show that you care and, and just engage them in a conversation. You know, they may not be suicide, but they may be. So talk to them about it. Share your concerns and ask what's going on. And then ask the question, if need be. The question meaning, are you thinking about killing yourself?
1: Right. Well, you guys are doing great work. So what what haven't we talked about here that you would like to get out today?
3: I think we have talked about the kind of things um, that you need to do. Maybe just uh, two more sentences about what Washington is doing. Uh, So we are working with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline to have more lifeline presence in our state so that people, when they call a lifeline, actually get a local person. Um, We have wonderful resources in Washington state. There is the agency called Forefront. In Seattle, they work on suicide prevention. There is American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. Um, they are great partners in suicide prevention. And um, we are also um, uh, working on um, the connection between suicides and um, firearms because there is a close connection. 80% of firearm deaths are not homicides, they're suicides. So we really need to work on safe storage of
1: firearms and that's what we're doing. 80% of deaths by firearm are suicides?
3: Yes, about 80%. That's quite surprising to most people.
1: That is surprising. i would not heard that statistic before. That was great information. I really appreciate you joining us today, Sigrid. And that was Sigrid Reinhart joining us from the Washington State Department of Health. And just uh, to recap what we talked about in the very beginning, their core principles of the Washington State Suicide Prevention Plan. The very first one is suicide is a preventable public health problem, not a personal weakness or family failure. Uh, the number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-TALK. one 800 273 82 Five, five. And I have to say, the website for the National Suicide Prevention Resource Center um, is excellent. It's You can find it at sprc.org, sprc.org. And from there, you can type in whichever state you live in, uh, and it will link you to that state's resource center. And if you want to uh, get to the Washington one, it's sprc.org forward slash states forward slash Washington. All right, coming up next, writer A.W. Barnes on his personal reflections on coming to terms with suicide and loss. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair.
5: Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping paws care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wildlife no experience necessary all training is provided visit pause.org or call 425-787-2500
3: this
1: is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Mary Moss and her Life Vantage supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, January 27th, it's an Encore presentation, of best and neuroenergetic balancing Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen and his sister Linda in the studio. Together, they helped listeners and their animal friends with emotional,
2: behavioral, and physical problems, and it was a great show with advice and help for all. Martha
1: Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150.
4: Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning.
5: Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP.
0: Let's see if I... I guess that. Uh, this just isn't working.
4: Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it, another. So, what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicky St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicky partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClaire.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClaire.com. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable at conversationslive.net.
0: You found
5: us. Maybe you've been guided to listen. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We've devoted this whole hour to raising awareness of suicide and suicide prevention. And we're going to hear from someone now about his personal reflections on coming to terms with suicide and loss. He is A.W. Barnes, has a Ph.D. in English literature and an MFA in creative writing. His nonfiction writing has appeared in Broad Street, The Away Journal, Gertrude Press and uh, other books. He's also written uh, other publications. He's also written an academic book called Post Closet Masculinities in Early Modern England. And uh, he's joining us today to talk about his first memoir. It's called The Dark Eclipse, Reflections on Suicide and Absence. A.W. Barnes, welcome.
5: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Well, I appreciate you being here. And as I said to you in the break, I wanted to do a show around suicide prevention and awareness. And I was waiting for the right book to land on my desk. And this was it. So uh, thank you. And I want to just let listeners know, uh, th- on the book, your name is A.W. Barnes. And we're going to call you Andy throughout the course of the show, just so there's <laughs> no confusion. Fine. Um, so the, the book really is a, is, a, is a series of personal essays written in the hope of coming to terms with right. your older brother's suicide. So let us just jump in here and, and find out how you learned of your brother's suicide and when, how, how that came up for you.
5: Sure. My brother, Mike, committed suicide in 1993, and I found out Mike's, a few of his friends one day had called me. Uh, He was living in New York, and I was living in Minneapolis at the time, and one of his friends called me and asked me if I had seen Mike or heard from Mike, because he'd been missing for a couple of days, and I said that I hadn't. And then a day later, I got a, a phone call from one of my brother's, to tell me that uh, that he had been found and he had committed suicide in a hotel in Times Square. Um, so then I, I uh, flew to New York with my parents and uh, we went to identify his body in the morgue there. Right. And
1: there's a whole history here that you, you kind of unfold in your book. And so let's go back a few years now and talk about your family and how you both grew up. You Grew up in a very conservative Midwest uh, family. Your father was quite fierce. Uh, both you and Mike were gay, which mm-hmm. you'd think would bring you very close together. But you write in the book that that wasn't necessarily so at that time.
5: That, that, that's the interesting thing that I, I come from a very large family. We have, there's seven boys and one girl in my family. And uh, Mike was three and a half years older than I was. And I thought, when we came out to each other in our 20s as, uh, as gay brothers, that that would bring us close together. But it didn't, and it didn't because we were brothers first. And in my family, at least, there was a distance between, our, our, between brothers, really, an emotional distance. And that came, I think, from my father and the way he sets the tone in our family, My father, who was studying to be a Trappist monk before he left and married my mother, he sort of ruled the house in a very stoic, monastic way. And that included an emotional distance between my father and his children and also between siblings. And so my brother Mike and I were brothers first and only gay brothers second.
1: Right. Um, He sounds... Your father, very, you used the word stoic, uh, he sounded quite fierce, um, and being gay was definitely not an option in that household.
5: Not at all. My, my father is, was and is a very staunch Catholic. Uh, he believes that uh, being gay is, is uh, an evil. Uh, there's a story I tell in the book. When we were at the morgue to identify my brother's body, my father, before we saw my brother, my father came up to me, pointed his finger at me, and said anyone who lives this kind of lifestyle deserves to die this way. And my brothers and my other brothers think, tell me that that was just his grief speaking. But I believe that that is what my, my, a core belief of my father's, that he would rather not have gay sons, uh, and, and, and sees us as, as the other. And it was very difficult to be raised and to live and to survive that kind of childhood, that kind of household. Mm. So
1: Mike got out uh, fairly early, right?
5: He did. He, um, My brother Mike was a golden child, and he went to the University of Notre Dame for his undergraduate work. Then he went to Duke Law School, and immediately out of law school, he landed a job uh, in Morgan Stanley, uh, yeah, Morgan Stanley on Wall Street in New York. So he left fairly early, and then I left in my later mid late 20s
1: did your other brothers get on with your father or was it did they have issues with him too
5: That's that's a great question because I'm just learning now as my father is 89 years old and he's had uh, COPD or emphysema for the last 10 years so he's in the last years of his life and I'm just discovering now when my brothers talk to me that they also have a fraught relationship most of them have a fraught relationship With my father, so the fact that Mike and I were gay added to the tension, but it wasn't wasn't the only thing that kept us at a distance from my father. So
1: you write that when you um, were notified of your brother's suicide, and you you went to the hotel room in Times Square where he was found, or he was found. That's where he was found. You went to the police station, Um, right. You, you blamed your dad for Mike's death, and you say you still do, even after writing the book.
5: Yeah, I do. And I do because uh, the, we grew up in a house that, of intolerance. And I, it, it's, it still has that feel to it, although it's, I haven't lived in my hometown Indianapolis for a long time now. But when I go back, I still feel that intolerance. Although I have a perfectly nice relationship with my siblings and my father. I have a very good relationship with my mother. But that oppressive, oppressive air that doesn't allow for otherness still exists. And I think it's my father who, who set that tone. Um, I do have to say that I'm currently – the book I'm working on now is called My Father's Body – and it is an attempt for me to reconcile, if if not with my father directly, at least with those parts of my father that I inherited. So I am trying to work through this this next bit.
1: And what parts would those be?
5: Well, I, I, I have my father's body, I look like him. So when I look in the mirror, I see my father looking back at me. And for someone who doesn't particularly like his father, perhaps doesn't even love his father, to see that reflected back to me every day is difficult. So part of it, this book I'm working on, is to accept those things in me, which I don't quite like. And most of those things I inherited.
1: Right. Uh, we all do. Yes, it's yes, to some degree, right? To and, some degree. <laughs> it's to some degree. Um, interestingly enough, even though you blamed your father for Mike's death and still do, you say your mother blamed herself.
5: Yeah, I, my, mother, my mother's a very strong person, and she in many ways um, ruled the house. Um, and my father was, was sort of in the background setting the tone, but she ruled the house. But also I think this, my mother knew early on that at least I was very different. I was an extremely sensitive child, and she tried to protect me uh, from my, my brothers and my father as well. This very sort of toxic masculine environment in which I grew up. And I think when she understood that Mike was also gay, that she understood what that status meant in our family and tried to protect us. And I think she saw Mike's death as a failure to protect him.
1: Yeah, I imagine that's something a lot of mothers would feel uh, if, I think so, if yeah. they're connected. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one of the stories that you share. This is a series of essays. My guest is A.W. Barnes. His new book is called The Dark Eclipse, Reflections on Suicide and Absence. And one of the sh- stories you share in there, Andy, is that uh, you say you met a man named David who um, became your husband eventually. And you, right. you write that the moment you met him, you felt a shift in you. How so? How so?
5: That, that's a, no one has ever asked me this story. <laughs> Everyone focuses on, no one ever asked me about David. David is my husband. We've been together for 26 years now. Um, I, it shifted. I, I, I'll tell you quickly how, how we met. I was living in, in Southern California, Laguna Beach, and I was on the verge of a, a nervous breakdown. And in my teens and 20s, I had several suicide attempts, and I had checked myself into a hospital to try to get help. And, and living in Southern California one day, I decided to give myself a haircut by myself. Which I thought it was going to be easy to do. It ended up uh, this freakish haircut. And I was uh, very I, – I was on the edge, so I called a friend of mine. And he said, well, come see me now. Uh, so I drove to see them, and uh, I met David through, through this friend. And David took one look at me in this crazy haircut I had, and he just said – you're cool. (laughs) And that was the first time someone looked at me, and I thought I was just odd, strange, bad kid. And someone looked at me and said, no, I see you, and you're good. That shifted something in me that allowed me to start to accept myself for who I was.
1: And the reason I asked you about David was because I think that sometimes, is all it takes to turn one's life around is just one person who actually sees us for who we are.
5: That's exactly right. And that's, that was the moment. And I, and I say in the book, too, in that essay, I, I left and I, I went with going back to Laguna Beach. And I decided to send David a postcard. And at that moment, I decided, I could have just said, bye, I see you later, nice knowing you. But I decided to send, send him a postcard. And at that moment, I really felt that I was choosing to love someone; that it was, and it was a, a very conscious choice. And that choice to love was also what changed my life forever.
1: Mm. You write that you were so happy that you'd met this man, David, and uh, you seduced him away from from his ex. I mean, this was this was a real <laughs> this was the real thing. Um, That's right. You were so happy that you called your brother Mike. Um, yes. And unbeknown to you, he was actually quite ill, um, yeah, but he his response to you was, "Well, life is great for me too. Could't be happier
5: yeah i had been I had been um, separated from my family. I consciously separated myself from my family for about a year, including Mike. so I had not heard from him in about a year, and I didn't realize in that year he was going through a lot of physical ailments which he documents. In, in, a, in a piece of paper I had, it was called The Salient Facts of Patient Michael J. Barnes. And he was trying to figure out what was going on with his body, and he couldn't. And so when he said to me he, he was doing fine as well, he was lying to me. Or He wasn't lying, he was covering up. He didn't want to share with me. And that, that is a, one thing about his death that really um, still lingers with me, that I was his, not just his brother, but his gay brother, um, and he couldn't reach out to me for help. He wouldn't reach out for me to help. He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't say that he was sick. Uh, and that's, hard, that was, that's been the hardest thing for me to, to reconcile.
1: Mm. Did you have any inkling at all that he was having suicidal thoughts? Had it ever come up at any point in his life?
5: None. Never. In fact, just the opposite. I write in this book, my family expected me. I was, a, I was the troubled one. I was the middle boy, the middle child, the moody one. I was the one that had uh, uh, attempts before, had been in the hospital. I was the one that my family would not have been surprised had I committed suicide. My brother Mike was the golden child. Mm. No one ever expected that. And I think one thing I try to do in this book, I, I try to understand, or I realized this after I wrote the book, I'm also trying to understand why did I survive or how did I survive that toxic environment when Mike did not? And I think the answer is I faced adversity when I was a young boy, and I had to learn to survive, and I did. My brother Mike never had to face severe uh, um, adversity in his life until that moment when he became, that year he became sick, and he didn't have the mechanisms to cope he didn't have uh, the answers or the tools to survive and so he killed
1: himself yeah it's very key every psychologist i've spoken to says that the resilience you know the ability to bounce back uh, and work through adversity is is, is key to yep. living well um now you felt that the rest of the family seemed to have forgotten mike uh, what how old was he when when he died he was Andy? 33
5: when he died oh that's
1: so young yeah Um, And you felt that the rest of the family had forgotten about him when you set out to, you wanted to write this book to work through your feelings. Um, After writing the book, do you think that statement is true that the family had let it all go? Or was that your perception at the time?
5: That's a good question. I have to say that I don't know if my siblings know that I've written this book or my mother and father. I never talked to them about it. I didn't tell them. And that's Part of that is because in order to continue to survive and not get sucked back into a toxic environment, I've had to create boundaries with them in my life. They all live back in my hometown. I'm the only one that lives away. When I go back there, I go there infrequently, but I keep boundaries. And part of that boundaries is my writing life, they have nothing to do with that. So I don't know, uh, I don't know what... Uh, Their reaction would be but when i do go home my brother's name is never spoken except by my mother Um, the rest of my siblings they have children and families of their own mike and i were the brothers who would never have children who didn't have the kind of family that my family recognized as legitimate i'll tell you one quick story one of my siblings when Mike died, they said, "You know, it was kind of like he's dead already when he moved away from home." Oh, wow! And that was—that's their idea that their life is centered around where they live and centered around the idea, their idea of what family is, and anything outside of that doesn't really have anything to do with their lives. Mm. You
1: were talking with what you call your shrink, and you had not read the um, letter, the suicide letter. And right. you, it, it, some years later this was, but you went and read the letter and and in it Mike wrote, uh, and you do share this at the front of the book, uh, you, he wrote, right. I wish I were more like you, Dad, who can attribute it all to God's will. What, what did you take from that, that he had forgiven his father, your father?
5: Uh, I've, that, Mike's suicide note, which I do reproduce at the beginning of the book as the first document in a book where I rely on documents, facts, to get at uh, the story here. I felt, I mean, I was angry when I read that letter. I was angry and I felt betrayed because in the letter Mike also says he wishes that he had a family, was married, and living back in Indianapolis. Those are all things that, when Mike and I talked when he was alive, that we didn't like. Mike didn't believe in God. He was an atheist. He never wanted to have children. So it's been hard for me to reconcile that letter. And what I think he meant it for was kind of a peace offering to my father. And my father took that letter and loved that letter. And he took that letter to our parish priest in order to demonstrate that my brother had uh, um, confessed in the end so that he could be buried in holy ground. And he was. So I think it was my brother Mike's trying to please my father. I think that any son, any child who has an emotionally distant parent, we're always trying to please them, right? to get them to love us, to show that they love us. And right. I think that's what Mike's that suicide letter was, his very last attempt to try to get my father to love him or to express love.
1: Andy, we're right at the end of our segment, um, but I want to get this in very, very quickly. You describe your grief as part of you, like a vital organ that you can't live without. Um, and you now live in New York where and Mike lived, and you feel surrounded by him. Has writing the book helped you? And we've only got 20 seconds here, Andy.
5: It's it helped me only in the sense that I, Mike lives in my memory only now. He has no say in my present day, which he used to. He used to, when I got into dark places, say, well, you could kill yourself just like I did. This book helped me to corral him in my memory in the past and to leave him there.
1: Thank you so much for being with us, Andy. We really appreciate you sharing your uh, personal journey with us.
5: Thank you very much. It It was my pleasure.
1: And the book, again, is called The Dark Eclipse, Reflections on Suicide and Absence. It is superbly written. Uh, A.W. Barnes is the author. You can find out more about him at d r a w D-R-A-W-B-A-N-S dot com. And uh, we will see you next week. We're right at the end of our show. (laughs) Uh, Live well, live strong.
0: Next week on Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Can holding a grudge actually work in your favor? Author Sophie Hanna says yes. It may even protect and inspire you and make you more forgiving. Hear why and how to hold a grudge from resentment to contentment. The power of grudges to transform your life. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and inflame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicky's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today